Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation about addiction, shame, guilt, pain, recovery, as well as an open and honest conversation with a man that works for one of the biggest cocaine dealers on the East Coast in the early 80s, was sucked up into the drug world in the pit of hell. He's now 35 years clean. Craig Brown has spent the last 22 years serving others as a recovery pastor and a director of Celebrate Recovery, the Church of the Redeemer in Gaithersburg, Maryland. He's the author of a new book. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About Stop Hiding, Start Healing. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited about having you on. I think you've got a lot to share, and and uh, looking forward to sharing your journey and getting to where you're at today, how you got there, and uh, ultimately the recovery program and the book. Sure. Thank so, you. You and I come from different parts of the same world. Yes. Um, I found that interesting when I first saw your bio. So I was on one side, you were on the other. So during this um, conversation, I'd like to get into a little, just a little bit of that. Sure. Uh, where'd you grow up? I was born in Washington, D.C. and have lived uh, in this area all my life. We, um, we lived in a little town called Mount Rainier, Maryland. Where I was first born, which is right over the district line in Maryland. And my father was an Episcopal minister at the local church there. And uh, I haven't gone too far uh, from, well, we've gone uh, quite a distance from there, but we live in the outskirts of Maryland, uh, about 40 miles outside of Washington, D.C. My wife, both, we were born in, in, in Washington and have very deep roots here. So I have two, two older sisters. My parents have passed on and, um, yeah, I've spent... Uh, a lot of time, a lot of energy in this uh, region. And you have you have kids, correct? I do. I uh, Debbie and I have three amazing uh, sons, 26, 24, and 21. And uh, they're just, they keep us busy. They're, they were out of the house and then they were back, they're back in the house. So we have a lot, a lot of energy in the house right now. We like it that way, actually, because I know so many people that are so eager to be empty nesters. And Debbie and I are polar opposite. Because all of our sons were in athletics. We went to games, AAU tournaments, college games. We traveled a lot together. We did a lot of road work in the car and, you know, went to all different places and we're so immersed in their lives. And and when we dropped them off at college and what have you, then it was a whole different season. And then that season has ended. Now they're often trying to get out, uh, you know, get on their own and uh, find their mission and purpose. And and they did for a little while uh, living elsewhere, but then they realized, you know, it wasn't that bad living at home. You know, mom's cooking is fantastic. And there are actually parents that we don't mind hanging out with. So so they uh, they came back and they are with us now and uh, we wouldn't have it any other way. So that's the codependency part of me that I can, I've, got to, I've got to work on is, uh, you know, letting them go completely. I'm there with you. I think I think most parents are like that. I, we I do the same thing. I've got yeah. two. We've not I. We've got my wife and I have two daughters, and they're both adults. But yeah. and they moved in in here when the same thing pandemic yeah. from last year. One of them moved in here um, after losing her job um, due to the pandemic, and uh, she moved from Tennessee to here, and then here to California. Yeah. So now they both our daughters and our son-in-law live in uh, California, but 
Mm. We're the same way. I'm still codependent with my children. I have to talk to them every day, be involved all the time. I called them kids to you earlier, but (laughs) as parents, they're still our kids. Yeah. They'll always be kids. We will always be parents. Exactly. We will never, ever give up being a parent. Did you go to college? Went to Ithaca College uh, in Ithaca, New York. That's where my journey, uh, my my uh, downfall uh, actually began because I was in such a hurry to get out of the house. Uh, and, you know, if you want to touch on that, you certainly have uh, my permission. But um, I was just eager to get away, to get out of, get away from home. And I was really, uh, I was a, you know, a decent basketball player in high school. I was and in music and art and what have you, but I had no direction. I should have gone on to play college basketball and I had no support from home. I had no support or direction. And I, uh, I got a num- number of different schools. This was back in 1978, of course, where, you know, I'd receive um, some interest and discussion, but it never went anywhere. And I just kind of gave up on it, went to Ithaca and I went to the party instead of going to class. And that's where really, um, my poor decision making, uh, lack of purpose, lack of mission, no self discipline. Uh, it was just uh, you know the store, everything aligned uh, for me to make to begin making poor decisions based on emotion and feelings and everything. And uh, and so I lasted a year, and I dropped out of college and I went back home and um, got a job. And um, but that's where I ended up working at a business run by the biggest, one of the biggest cocaine, de- cocaine dealers on the East Coast. And got set, like you mentioned in the intro, I just got sucked up into that drug world. And uh, that's where I began my journey to the pit of hell began. What kind of a family life do you have? Uh, well, I'm a preacher's kid. Um, and we have an amazing reputation depending on what denomination, who you talk to. And our family, well, I, I had very, um, uh, I, I had not a very good nurturing, nurturing relationship with my dad. Uh, he was always out, always busy. Uh, I could count on one hand what we did as father and son, and I, I still have fingers left over. He just was not interested or seemed interested in all of doing anything that, you know, with me alone or his only son. Our family life was uh, complicated. Because as um, as I explained in the book, my dad struggled with his own demons. You know, everybody has defects, Michael, everybody. People put pastors and all these other people on these pedestals. And it's a big mistake because everybody from the corporate boardroom to pastors to you name it, everybody has de- defects they're dealing with. My dad had some pretty tough defects and demons he was struggling with himself. So. On the outside, we're the Brown family and, the you know, we're at church and we're all dressed well and had to perform. And mom was the perfect enabler, making sure that family looked good and Father Brown looked good. And then behind the scenes, he was just raging. and You know, he would um, beat all of us at some point in time. Oh, well, we deserved it sometimes just because we mouthed off or totally, you know, disrespectful. Uh, but oftentimes we didn't. And uh, there was no gray area or, or, or there was gray. It was like, well, why are you treating me this way now? You know, and a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of, I just felt unsafe. Uh, and as a youngster, I had to develop coping mechanisms and 
to be able to escape and, and deal with that, deal with abandonment, deal with, you know, hurt, pain, shame, guilt. And, you know, but part, but the other side of that is we grew up in the church and the church family was a cool, cool place to be. It was really, really like we all enjoyed it. But after my sisters and I look back and we we're just amazed that we were able to survive all that. It was just a, it's a, it was a very, very dysfunctional environment for us. I, I think I respect you for coming through that. Um, and it's a journey. It's a, I grew up with alcoholic parents and mm. uh, so I can understand it from another perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lost my father. Um, he was only 39 years old. He died of esophageal wow. cancer and cirrhosis of the liver, oh. which at 39, obviously he was a heavy drinker and sure and so forth. And our family was, uh, seems like those of us, I think we're around the same era because you had mentioned the college around 1978-ish. Yes. Yeah. Kind of an era. So mm-hmm. I think people from that era, the baby boomer, you know, tail end of the baby boomer environment, um, there's a lot of dysfunction, unfortunately, yeah. with with how kids are raised and, and what was put with on them and what expectations there were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it... It's unfortunate, but you know when we look back on those thoughts, and uh, you may or may not agree with me. I think when you look back on that, you can use that experience to help others. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, it's, you know, early on, as a young adult, you're just trying to fit. You're trying to, you know, what did I, what is going on in my life? You know, and that's that's my story. I blamed everything, right? On and I, you know, on everybody, you know, and you know, I, and it's not until you enter into an environment where you began, where you develop self awareness, and all of a sudden your emotions, and you're getting a hold of your feelings, and you're getting a hold of a, you know, your purpose in life, and what, and it all starts to come together, and you enter and you begin to heal, and you enter into a healthy lifestyle that you can look back. See, I can look back on that now, and. Yes. Was it painful? Absolutely. Was it, would I want to go through that again? No. Would I wish it on anybody? No, absolutely not. But everything I am today, Michael, is a result of that pain. Everything I am today is a result of the, the, my deepest pains and all throughout, you know, my, or my childhood or youth and young adult life. And, and I understand. I, yeah, yeah. And I use that now you know, in my role to be able to serve and care and empathize. Empathy is one of the biggest voids I find in churches and other and other places, empathy. Because if you haven't been to the pit of hell, if you haven't lived like you did with an alcoholic father or myself with a, with a narcissistic, you know, uh, gentleman with some major challenges, you know, uh, how can we empathize with those that, uh, you know, uh, you know, without having that experience. And that's what I tell my team that we're a part of in the ministry is that is don't lose empathy is hardly talked about, but don't lose sight of your brokenness and where you came from and with the healing you've, you've received because you are able to fully understand the darkness. Everything I wrote in this book, every chapter, every, ver- every single uh, uh, page, I have lived over and over and over again, and I can empathize. You can empathize, and it's missing in our society. I, I agree with you with that. You know, uh, my empathy, my capacity to empathize yes, helped yes. me on the job 
when yes. I was working because I was able to empathize when I worked at domestic violence task force. Yes. And when I dealt with other kids within the environment that I grew up in, it made me a better cop, actually. Absolutely. Human being. And I was able to, they kind of, uh, were, well, my wife said it, they were drawn to me. And I think they were drawn to me because of the empathy. Yes. Because they could, they could. Uh, your heart was revealed in that very difficult situation. It's a skill, and it's a yes. gift. It is kind of, kind of both. Needs to be nurtured. Uh, do you have any aspirations to be when you were a kid? Did you? I know you didn't want to be a drug, work with a drug dealer. What, what were your aspirations? <laughs> there were two things I wanted to be when I was in school, and that was either a veterinarian or a social worker. And Those come to admirable. find out, pardon. Those are admirable. Yeah, they were. But uh, like I said, uh, I got I was derailed um, by a number of different, you know, by a number of different circumstances and what have you. But um, but uh, it's it's fun. It's interesting because I really I had a desire to help people. And little did I know that, you know, uh, all these years later, I'd be doing exactly that. I didn't get a degree in it, but I. I'm doing exactly. Uh, I'm in environments and situations and life and death situations and mental illness situations and addiction situations, and I'm doing exactly what I've been called to do. You so, know, it's interesting how the universe puts us in the place that we need to be. Yeah, and at the right time. Oh, absolutely. You know, oh, I, without I, a doubt. Yeah, I believe it. So how how did you get? Let's talk about your journey getting pulled into that that yeah. uh, the negative world. Okay. So I know that yep. you said you went back and you went to work for. I did. I, I, I did. I dropped out of college and went back and was. Uh, I had a number of different. <laughs> I don't have time to explain this one, but I my first job was working for a roofing company, and um, real short story, and I'll keep it as short. I got kicked out. I got kicked off the White House grounds. Believe it or not, our our company was putting a roof on the west wing of the, of the uh, White House in the Carter administration. And there was an altercation on the roof with the supervisor and one of my coworkers. And I sided with the coworker, and uh, he got locked up. And I was ushered off the White House grounds, uh, and 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 I didn't think anything of it. Thirty years later, my brother-in-law was working at the White House as a photographer, and he invited us to come for behind-the-scenes visit. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, and he had to put our give up the Secret Service our Social Security numbers, and by and to our surprise, he comes back to me, and he says, uh, uh, "Craig, uh, I need to talk to you." And I'm like, "Well, I'm looking forward to the I'm looking forward to the uh, tour." And he goes, "Um, you need to call the Secret Service." Thirty years later, thirty years later, they still had my information, and I was not anywhere allowed anywhere near the White House grounds. And uh, wow. I was 19 years old. I was mouthing off. Uh, again, I was on that trajectory of, of dysfunction. Um, and uh, believe it or not, my past came back to haunt me 30 years later. But they did allow me to go. I explained that I was coming to the defense of a co-worker. And yeah, what, what was I going to do? So I had no sense. No sense. Um, but I began working in that element. Um, and here's the, and the tough part is my friends were at Duke and Tufts and Williams and, you know, they were all off and they had their, you know, careers planned. And I just felt like a complete failure. 
Um, so I, I began to work and then I got into the bar. I started working in the bars and I was a bouncer and, you know, worked at different bars and what have you. And one of the establishments happened to be owned by the biggest cocaine dealer on the East Coast. I did not know that going in. I did not plan that. I just happened to uh, enter in there and became, and was working. And we, um, I got, I, I found out after the fact, you know, of who he was and what he did. And, uh, and so, um, and then I, I thought I had, you know, I was, I was like, wow, well, this is cool. You know, uh, I wasn't really into it that deep at, at that time. I was like 20 years old. And then it just went downhill from there uh, because uh, in the early 80s, all throughout, as you know, in the country, uh, cocaine was uh, everywhere. And I mean, everywhere, every practically everyone had it. And so I was working in that bar business, uh, which w- and, and it was um, just wreaking havoc everywhere. And I was caught up in that. And I mean, you know, this that he had quite a after, you know, come to find out he had amazing uh, business going on. And, you know, I wasn't involved in the particulars of his drug trade. I just happened to be working for him in a business, but I was circulating and associating with everybody. And, um, you know, it just uh, it just, you know got deeper i got deeper and deeper into it and um you know i'd be up for days and it was just it was just horrible absolutely horrible in the midst of it you and this is the thing with addiction addiction begins with a choice i i made a choice uh addiction can be uh, it's hard to stop because you can't make a choice not to use and I was so deep into it, and most are when they're using. They're, they get so deep into it that they cannot make a decision to to make to stop this habit, and they need help doing it. And so that lasted for a number of years. I was in the you know that pit of hell for a number of years. And gosh, big names were coming in and out of the establishment. And I, I'm not going to name names, um, but you know it was uh, it was. Uh, and this is it right there in Washington D.C. And, you know, Capitol Hill people and, you know, and then at that age, you're so impressionable. You're like, oh, this is, you know, this is awesome. Now, now it was horrible. So in reality, though, so you weren't actually dealing. No, you weren't, well, you uh, weren't I, 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 I would, I did here and there, uh, not to that level, not to that degree. You know, if it was someone that needed something and I happened to, you know, I could get it and I could, you know. Uh, uh, make a sale. Yeah. Yeah. It was only on a, it was low level. It was just, you know, uh, if anybody needed anything, I could work it out for him. But I was not, now he had, he was moving a lot, a lot of product on a regular basis. Now, the majority of that, did it come through that bar? It did. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, or an offsite location um, came straight out of Florida. Um, there's a gentleman down there that, um, I won't again, refer to even nicknames, but there was a, uh, his guy was down there. And, um, he began by driving stolen cars up and down 95, uh, hauling stuff. And then he just established his own in DC and, and this guy supplied him. Kind of went from there. Wow. Yeah. So 
I'm assuming then your addiction started within that environment, or did it start early it, well, in college? Well, I began drinking. You know, I began drinking later in high school. Uh, it was really I just again it, it, and this is the um, this is the most troubling part about all this, and that is you know without when you don't have self discipline or self worth, self esteem, self control, um, it. It's just too easy. The party, the part, and you know this, the party welcomes everybody. That does not discriminate against about race, um, economics, uh, econo- you know, whatever. It's open to everybody. And, and you and I, and gosh, you don't have to look far for people that, you know, some big names have fallen. You know, I mean, it just, um, but uh, yeah, it, it um it was quite, uh, he had quite a, a business going and he ultimately passed away um, of he- for health reasons. I mean, he would take, um, you know, drink NyQuil or take quaaludes to go to sleep. And then he'd, you know, use cocaine and speed to make it through the day. And he'd drink, a, you know, uh, drink a lot. And he died in his sleep one night. Yeah, it kind of catches up with you. It does. It will. Did, you, did your family know? Uh, no, no. No, part of that's why it's in my book. I, I was hiding. We all hide. We all all hide. of us hide. We all have something to hide. And I, my my sisters, you know, they, well, did they know? They didn't know the depth of it. They didn't know uh, how deep I was in or, or you know, uh, I would show up to family events and things. And then, you know, I was just, I was just really depressed and just, felt like a failure and I didn't want to be around anybody. And that's what happens when you're in that environment. You don't want anybody to ask you questions. Oh, how's your job? Or how's this? Are you getting married? Do you have a girlfriend? Or And when the answer is no, I'm just a complete failure. You know, um, they, they, they could tell things weren't right. But uh, again, our family, we didn't talk about feelings or emotions or, you know, and it was our fault. So, you know, our parent, my dad was, you know, I shared that story in the book and mm-hmm. I learned shame as a very young, young kid, you know, where, um, you know, it was just, it was just, so I knew why would I bring it up? You know, it's just going to tell me what, it, what a failure I am and what a loser I am. And, you know, yeah, you just go ahead and go on with your life. And so, yeah. I was going to ask they, you how guilt and shame came into this and how it played upon you and, and what factor did it obviously did it grow you push you farther down into that oh absolutely shame does that yep yeah yeah um see on this side after years 22 years or more of caring for others in christ-centered recovery uh i shame is the number one it could first of all comes from the pit of hell and it is used to keep really good people really good people in the darkness, uh, in bondage, and to hide from others and to to not share what is going on in their life. And it's happening everywhere. Uh, and and the best place to hide is churches. And I share that in the book, but we don't, you know, um, but shame, shame to me, I, I, early on, I thought it was pride, but pride is way down on the list. It's shame because Shame is debilitating because if you have to come out and you have to share what is truly going on in your life, in your marriage, or with your children, or in your workplace, 
or your addiction or whatever that may be to come forward because, and this is what I say often, this is what I said in the book, everything, everything that you want in life is on the other side of fear. My The first chapter in the book is um, until, you know, uh, until the pain is greater than your fear of changing, you won't change. Your pain level has to be greater than your fear of changing. Shame, you'll just become totally paralyzed by it, and you'll stay in the pain because that's all you know. That's your comfort zone. That's your comfort level. It's your best friend. You know it, know it well, because you're scared to death to, to bring it out in the open and stop hiding. And that's what, uh, and from a spiritual standpoint, which is everything about my life and, you know, my mission and purpose, and the enemy uses that, you know, the devil uses that and goes after because he knows all of our weaknesses better than anybody. And he goes right at us. And if it's not, and if it's not dealt with, if it'll, it'll wreak havoc on our lives, if we don't recognize it and allow that shame to be stripped from our life. And it has, um, it just, it's like a, a cocoon. It's like it, it wraps itself around your soul and it just uh, tears at the fabric of everything you're about. And, and if you leave it there, and I deal with it, Michael, I deal with adults on a regular basis that have held, that have been, you know, uh, been in bondage to shame for years starting at that young that that youth level that you and I mentioned earlier and they have not been able to break that and be freed from that in their life and as a result they use pornography substance food codependency anger gambling whatever as a met to medicate that one of those symptoms to medicate that shame and to medicate that pain and then they have to arrive at that desperation point where they're no longer afraid anymore. And that's where I was brought to when I finally, finally gave up and was able to be set free. I was just about to ask you, what made you decide to leave it? Um, I, in 1985, I don't know. Oh, well, I do know now. In 1985, July 15th, 1985, uh, if you know anything about the East Coast and the beaches uh, on the East Coast, there's a place called Dewey Beach. It's ground zero for a party, okay? Ground zero, three months out of the year for the party during the summer. And I was coming home from there after a three-day, whatever you want to call it. And it was very profound. Uh, it was, I'll never forget the day, but I was coming home from there, and I had uh, that awakening. I had that epiphany. And it didn't, I didn't change that afternoon. But... I realized that if I didn't make any changes in my life, I was going to end up dead or I was, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't looking real good. And what we don't realize, Michael, is that God's hand, whether you believe him and accept him or not, God's hand is on every single one of us. You know, it's there. And it was on that day where I realized um, it had, I thought it was me, but after the fact, I realized who it was and it, it and I began to change my approach, my attitude, my thinking, my behaviors, and which in turn changed my circumstances. 
And that began my, I began to extricate myself from that entire lifestyle. I didn't go to rehab, didn't have, didn't go any meetings. I, it was just one of those, one of those uh, amazing, amazing experiences that changed my life. But, okay, I did end up stop using drugs. I stopped drinking, but then I was still miserable. How long had you been on drugs and, and uh, alcohol at that point? Eight, uh, it was between eight and 10 years. Eight, 10 years, and you did not go into rehab? No. Yeah, no, see, that's amazing within itself because people that have been on or addicted, you know, in that environment for that amount of time typically need rehab or assistance in getting, getting help and moving I forward. was all alone, truly. I was, and this is, I thought I did it myself. I thought for sure that I, I I had the strength and the power to be able to do it myself. So and what I was, was that recovery process I, like? And I was so fooled. <laughs> I was so <laughs> I was so, I was, you know, I was, yeah. Because see, when you're in the midst of your addiction and your uh, struggles and your, your pain struggles, your life struggles, you develop this, you know, very sickening false reality, right? And so... That doesn't end right away. I mean, I, I did. I got out of drugs and alcohol, and I started to straighten up, and I got back in the gym, and I started working out, take care of myself, and I replaced all the energy I was putting into getting high with starting to take care of myself. And my whole perspective began to change, and things got better. But uh, I was still miserable. I was still miserable. And I... Miserable in that I, I really didn't have any mission and purpose, and I, I was still struggling. I would take, I was working in different industry, and you know, um, but I was still there was something missing, and uh, and the major change after about seven years, I believe it was the major change was my dad was dying. Uh, I got that phone call that none of us like to get. And my sister said, you got to get to the hospital. My dad had had some major uh, physical issues and, and illnesses. And she said, you got to get to the, we got to get to the hospital. Dad's dying. And he had had a major operation and they couldn't stop the bleeding. And it was a matter of hours. Well, this is the interesting part. So God brings me to the bedside of the one man that I had was dying to have a relationship with. And here he was going to die. I, I had, we had nothing up until that point. Nothing in that, I shouldn't say nothing, but there was, uh, there just that father-son relationship that you're dying for, to hear that he's proud of you, that he, he, he has your back and support you in anything you want to uh, try in life, to be there at every event, and what, that's what I mean by not, it just wasn't there. But it's interesting, so I'm brought to his bedside, and my dad uh, is, is laying there try, in ICU, dying. And I'm standing next to his bedside, uh, feeling like a complete failure. And he's going to die. And I've done nothing, nothing with my life up until that point. And that had such a profound effect on me that that was the tipping point. My, my, my pain level on that day was greater than my fear of doing whatever it could it take to get well and to heal from everything that I've been through. And the very next day, I just gave up and surrendered. I didn't, again, I'm all alone. 
I just said, God, if you're if you are who you say you are, and and months before, my mother had given me a daily bread, this little devotional. I devoured that thing. I had no spiritual discipline or anything up until that point, even though I was a preacher's kid. But I didn't listen to what my father was saying in the pulpit. So I took that, and and that was the that was the seed that was planted. And I and the very next day, I just surrendered. I said, I can't do this anymore. I said, God, take this pain away from me. You know, I hear, and Lord, come into my life, take over my life, do whatever you want with my life, and take the pain and heal me. And it was instantaneous. I mean, it was, I was like an hour in that state. And my life's never been the same since that day. And my re- recovery began on that day. So you well, so in, in essence, then your recovery lasted longer than the than a standard recovery through rehab. It was just a different approach. <laughs> totally different approach. Totally different, different approach. Because I see. Here's the thing about recovery versus Christ-centered recovery, um, and that is, uh, oftentimes in recovery, it's it's totally myopic. Get sober, get clean. Get sober, get clean. Get sober, get clean. Um, the difference is, and that's good. And we, that should be, but that's, but sobriety and abstinence is the byproduct of doing the work, right? And doing the work in the process of recovery is dealing with the pain, dealing with the shame, dealing with the guilt, dealing with the trauma, dealing with abuse. I've helped so many men who've been sexually abused in their, in their youth, who hid that, who suffered from that, who were in shame bondage of shame because of that and they would drink and do drugs and medicate and what have you um so what i see in the last 22 years of christ Center recovery is and we get a ton of people from regular you know secular recovery and and god works in every, all recovery don't don't get me wrong but if you haven't gone and dealt with the pain the shame the guilt and the trauma and the abuse and all of that and 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 been healed from that Okay. And I mean, I mean, you're pulling back the layers of stuff that you have not wanted to deal with in, in, you know, most of them. And that was me. I lived it. So I fully empathize and understand what it's like to not want to deal with the pain. But you have to. You have to in order to break that cycle of addiction. You've got to deal with that. And so I began to deal with it then. And it's been. 36 years, 35, 36 years. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> a lot of people tell, a lot of people say, well, you know, if you ask God to take over your life and, you know, uh, Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, isn't that it? It's like, no, it's like, no, it's only the start. It's only have, the beginning. Like anything, you have to work at it. Our relationships, you don't just get married and expect it to work. You have to, you have to work at effort. it. In any point, you have to yeah. work at it. Yeah. And it took me 40 years, about 40 years, to really under, fully understand um, about my father and his yeah. addiction and basically yeah. what he went through as a child, as a young adult, and, and what drove him to drink. Yeah. Because I had seen him go into rehab a couple of different times, but they put him on antabuse. You know, yeah. He, yeah. he drank while he was on antabuse and took him yeah. to the hospital. Yeah. You know, I mean, way back then, that's what was the primary thing. They put you in any right. put you in a facility sure. and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Right. I watched that a couple of different times. But 
and I could never fully, even as a, because obviously I was a kid at the time. Right. It's like, why don't you see this is bad for you? It took me 40 years, over 40 years actually, to find out and figure out exactly. And I did that when I started kind of doing a genie, ironically enough, yeah. a genealogical oh, search wow. in regard to my grandparents and uh-huh. my grandfather. My grandfather on his side died at 27 years old. And, you know, I never knew much about my family past my my father, actually. Yeah. And there was wow. these stories that my grandfather actually worked for the mob in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia area, and uh, that uh, basically he screwed over the mob by testifying against them, and that um, they somehow got him arrested, and then the, he supposedly strangled himself in jail, and that's how he died, Okay. But ironically enough, what I've come to find out is, yes, he did work for an organization. He did testify against them. He was going back to testify again. And all of a sudden, they said, oh, he stole my mirror, put him in jail. And within 24 hours, he he had allegedly hung himself, right? Oh, man. So really, ironically, right before the trial was to start for him to testify. So, well, as a cop, I look at that and go, okay, well, there's something real fishy there, right? Yeah, <laughs> That's sure. That's right. Sure. But it explains a lot because my, my father grew up not with the stigma of that, number one, and then and then anyway, his life passed that. It just created an environment, and that environment included the shame and the guilt and the everything, and then that compounded upon itself. And I didn't learn about all these things until I started doing this genealogical research and finding all these mm-hmm. newspaper articles, including things that happened to him that he never talked about and I never knew about. Wow. And it was like, okay, now I understand why he drank. Wow. Now I understand why Why did he not get more help right. than what he did? Because I, my family has a, and this, obviously this is, we're talking about you, but uh, my no. family has an interesting um, they say that, which I, I have a question for you here in a second, but they say that, you know, you, you, you have, you're prone to alcoholism. You know, you have, uh, there's a disease in that you as a kid are prone to that. So I, I have a question in regard to that. Wow. And it, was, it was bizarre, but it took me over 40 years to kind of understand. Now right. I know why. He felt guilty. Right. He felt shame. Yes. He felt this, he felt that. And it all kind of pieced together finally. And he just wanted to medicate it. Well, it, and it, and it, and it allowed me to forgive him because I was angry for a really long time. I bet. About the fact that, yeah, hey, why you, why didn't you do anything about this? I've answered exactly. that question now. Yeah. But yeah. You know, why did not, why didn't you think it was important enough to, to take a different route, to be proactive, to walk away from this? It's a very selfish lifestyle, Michael. Oh, yeah. 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 So, it's totally it's, see, I understand lifestyle. that now. Yeah. Yeah. It, it took a long time for that to come into it. So, with that in mind, do you think um, do you think addiction, whether it be to drug, alcohol, or food, or whatever the case may, is a desire or a disease, or or anything aside from that? Um, I believe it's a warped desire, a warped desire. But there's no um, disputing the fact that. Uh, the brain, okay? The, our brain is designed for euphoria. You know, you drink, uh, you, whether it's, you know, you're drinking, you're doing 
uh, drugs, uh, you know, the op opioids, of course, have wreaked havoc and killed so many people. I mean, it's a desire. Pornography, it's a desire. You know exactly what you're going to get when you go there, right? You know exactly how you're going to feel. You know exactly what you're going to get when you begin, when you use, and you desire that. Back up further, I believe it is a choice. Just because our, you know, parents, now, let me, let me say this. We all develop character defects at a very young age because of, you know, uh, uh, the, what our parents handed down, some of it, uh, circumstances, you know, um, environments and, and what have, we develop these character defects at a very young age. Um, and if we're exposed to it, uh, now, you know, uh, there's a really good chance you're going to follow in their footsteps or you are going to not want anything to do with that. And I've heard story after story about people that did that. They had a choice. I I don't want anything to do with their lifestyle. I choose not to. You made that decision. Your brother and your sister, you know, um, uh, you know, may think differently. But just uh, so to answer your question, um, one, I believe it is a warp uh, desire because we all have we all deal with desire. And from a spiritual standpoint, you either desire to please yourself or you desire to please God. It's one of the two. You know, you either please, you're either des your desire is to please you or please God with everything you're doing in your life. Kind of simplified. But I, I'm asked this all the time. And people say, well, you know, my parents were this or that. And I said, and, you know, I said, I'll. You know, or people say, well, you know, I was born an addict. I said, no. I said, does God truly, does God make addicts? Does he create addicts? No, he created you and you were wonderfully made. You were wonderfully made. And the best gift he gave all of us was a choice. He didn't hit us over the head and said, you're going to, you're going to honor me. You're going to, you know, uh, you're going to be mine. You, we had a choice. He gave us a choice. And same with uh, same with addiction. If I grew up in a household, uh, well, I share the story in the book about my friend who's one of the top top uh, pediatric cardiologists in the in the in the well, might be world by now. But he grew up in a similar environment that I did, and it, it just blew me away that day when he and I were sharing. And he said, "Craig, I, I was in the I had a similar choice as you, and don't think I didn't think about going down that path." But I thought I said, "No, I'm going to show my father." what I can do. I'm going to prove to him that I can be a success. I was just polar opposite. I could care less what he thinks, and I'm just going to be a failure. It's a, it's a choice, you know? And he, uh, my friend, uh, he blew me away when he shared that with me. And, uh, and he, he just dedicated himself, and he, he was on a, on a trajectory to be the best he could be in his field, and he is. And we had so many similarities. It was just amazing. So um, environment will influence us without a doubt, but I'm a firm believer. Now, oh, let me, let me, let me touch on disease. Michael, back in the 1950s uh, in, um, in Minnesota, it, it, it was then uh, that, that the word disease began to trickle into addiction, into alcoholism, into addiction. And people grasp the whole grasp a hold of that, right? And it's been used ever since. It's been labeled ever since. It's you know for a lot of different reasons, and I'm sure 
uh, there are many governmental agencies that, that will that use that for funding and everything else. But when it comes down, and my one of my dearest friends is uh, Dr. John Amhau, who's a who's a, a, a specialist on alcoholism, and he and I actually hope to do a seminar one day on the spiritual and the science approach to addiction. But um, you know, it it so disease worked its way, and people will use that. You know, people use, oh, well, this disease I have or this disease. And I, I, I've been there. I never saw myself as self ever as being diseased. I just told God to take away my desire for that line of cocaine. I told him to shift, take and and change my whole perspective and paradigm when and pivot when it comes to my desires. And if we if we put every effort into doing that. By building a recovery network, having a sponsor, mentor, guide, accountability team, accountability partner, small group interaction, support, prayer, uh, encouragement, and develop that that network, it'll happen for our, your, our listeners. It'll happen for them. It truly will. And, you know, I, I just talk often about, you know, if uh, one of the chapters is find a new family. If your family... If you came from a, a, a and your family, it, it, or you came from a dysfunctional family, and your family is unsafe, well, find a new family, love them, you know, honor them, but find a new family. And where people, and that's why the church was created, find a new family who are safe, trusted, and you know where you find them, especially when it comes to addiction and other life challenges, is in Christ and our recovery. In reality, people need to understand that you don't have to be blood to be family. No, no, uh, no. Uh, people in recovery have a second family. And that, that happens in secular recovery, Christ-centered recovery, all recovery. You get in that small group. I'm a firm believer that healing happens in circles where you're sitting in that room and, and you're hearing this. You're, first of all, you find out even to this day, people think they're the only one that are struggling in, in their home. And they're not, they're not, the vast majority of people are dealing with some really tough stuff. And this past year, it's just exasperated, you know, it's just caused even worse havoc in people's lives due to the pandemic. You know, you think isolation in the pandemic can do addiction? Oh my gosh, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. One, if you were in if you were, if you had established a good recovery system in your life, and you, and that was just, you know, the rug was just pulled out from under you, uh, we've lost a number of people to uh, uh, overdoses this past year. Absolutely, just couldn't handle it. Even though we've been uh, been uh, virtual all year long, our small groups, everything, um, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it, and you know, um, but it. Yeah, isolation is uh, a major influencer for uh, in a in a in a bad way for people that struggle with addiction because it's about hiding. It's all about hiding. You know, uh, I'm going to pull back. Uh, even as an introvert, you know, by design, this this you know past year has been. Even though I enjoy, I can, I'm comfortable being alone, and I if I've had enough people stuff, I can just retreat a little bit and regroup and get energy and go back out. Even this has been too much for me. You know, I've had a struggle with that myself. So yeah, isolation is especially this last year. I know that um, not not just with addiction, isolation has been very oh, 
bad for people with depression and oh. anxiety. Oh, and, absolutely. Panic attacks. Yeah, and, panic yeah. attacks and everything. That, that too has been very, very challenging for a lot of people. Uh, absolutely. Just, just the pandemic alone it's just added stress, you know, without having to wear the mask or go get the you know, vaccination and everything involved. I'm working at home now. And am I producing? And a lot of different moving parts there that are very hurtful for people that are dealing with stress, anxiety, and panic attacks. Well, for people dealing with recovery, um, what made you become a recovery pastor in specific? Um, I... That was a, um, yeah, it was March, I forget what year, quite a few years ago. And there was, I, I just felt uh, in my heart that that was the stream that I wanted to, to flow in. I, I just, I, I wanted to use my, um, the depth of my darkness, my pain, my shame, everything I'd been through, my recovery, um, you know, and everything that I, all the effort that I put in to work through that. And if you're familiar with the 12 steps, step 12 is, you know, now you're going to go give that away. It makes no sense for us, Michael, you or I to be healed from something for you to have your experience that you've had with your dad, your family, but your dad, and then 40 years, you work through that. You are a perfect, um, uh, candidate for helping those other adults of alcoholic, uh, uh of alcoholics who, you know, who were dealing with that same anger, that shame, all of that. And so I, I just felt this strong calling to give back and to to share and to support others, especially men. And um, my pastor at the time knew my testimony. And he said, would you, this was 23 years ago, he said, would you start this ministry, this uh, Christ Center Recovery Ministry? to help others in our church. We need it. Our church has really, really grown. We got a number of different issues. Uh, would you start that? Well, it's been, yeah, 22 years later. My, uh, we have a team of 30 dedicated leaders, all of whom have been to the Valley and back, you know, and we've served wow. thousands of people over the last 22 years. What's the first step for those, let's say somebody's in a situation like this, or they're in an environment like that, that you had come from, or that I had come from, what would be the first step do you think that they need to take to get help? Um, search for, well, all over the country, there are, in, in churches all over the country, there are ministries called Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and that was started at, um, uh, Lake, uh, at Saddleback Church out in Lake Forest, California. It's been 30 years now. And they have a curriculum, they have, a, you know, the whole format, and, and that is offered, and churches use it all over the country. That would be a good step to find a Celebrate Recovery Ministry uh, in your local area. And I'm pretty confident there'd be one. They're all over the country, all over the world. Um, uh, but here's the fear that people have, and that is uh, because they have been, their confidence have been, has been blown, uh, they've been um, talked about, or they've had you know, poor, uh, or they grew up in the church and they had a poor experience in the church. There's a lot of different, you know, challenges that, that people have had that they will use as a condition not to speak up and get help. You have to put all those aside. You have to put all of those aside. If your spouse is, is really, really struggling and you as a spouse 
are doing everything in your power to make them look good or to keep the family together, what have you, the best thing you can ever do is reach out and find support and reach out and find a safe place for you to speak with others to for them to invite you in where you can find the local resources. You know, every county, state, every church should have local resources. Every, you know, county or other should have state-sponsored or offerings for people that are struggling. It may, you know, the first call is an important call. The, the most important thing you can do is get over your fear. If the pain in your family, your marriage, your own personal life is greater than your fear of worrying about what someone else is going to think, make the phone call. Make the phone call. Even if, even if it's the slightest of, make the phone call. Find that safe and trusted person that you can talk to. And they can reach out to me on my website. If they're uncertain, uh, I, I can act, act as a conduit and uh, guide people, you know, maybe not across the country. Uh, I know you're, you're in so many different markets, even, even in, out, of, out of the country. But um, uh, if you need someone that understands and you just want to chat, or, you know, reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to be of help. Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing opportunity and, for somebody that's seeking for help. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, uh, another organization I highly recommend is New Life Ministries. Uh, if you just uh, look at uh, uh, go online, New Life Ministries. Steve Artiver, dear friend of mine, um, he uh, has a wonderful ministry. It's been, my gosh, it has to be over thirty some years. New Life Ministries, and they have. He's on. You know, as a radio program, as a television program, numerous books. You can't, you can't make the wrong call, you know, uh, and you know, and again, you'll make the right call. Just make. Yeah, you the phone you call have to reach out or get you online. To, you have to recognize it and reach out. What was your motivation for writing your book? Stop hiding, start healing. Um. Well, I. I've wrote it because um, I I hid, and I know it full well, and I was really really good at it, and I didn't start healing until I stopped hiding. Number one, number two, I've observed now Michael for twenty two years, twenty two years in in Christ Center Recovery, involved in church community, and I. When I, when I was prompted, when the Lord prompted me to said, this is the time to, to get this book together, the title came immediately, immediately, because what I've observed, and especially in churches, uh, and again, that's the environment in which I've been, I've been serving mostly, um, people hide. Uh, church is a wonderful place for people to hide, you know, because we go and we put on our Sunday best and we act like everything's going well and we greet people and we have coffee and we participate in something and, you know, and uh, you're waving at your friends, you're sitting with your favorite people, you're, you know, shaking hands as you leave. And then you get to the car and you take a deep sigh and you say to yourself, I didn't have to tell anybody that my life is a complete mess, unmanageable, and I'm in turmoil right now. And another Sunday went by. Happens, happens years and years and years for people. Because church is just that place, you know, uh, where people go to hide instead of heal. And that was really what prompted me to uh, to write the book, to title the book, because uh, in order for you to 
heal, you've got to stop hiding. And I know that we've given away some of the secrets during this conversation about what's in the book, but there's so much more within there. There is, yeah. To help people. Sure, absolutely. So where can they find that? You can go to my website, stophidingstarthealingbook.com, stophidingstarthealingbook.com, or you can just go to Amazon in the search bar, Craig Brown, Stop Hiding, Start Healing, and it is there. You can, And I'll have a link to that within our show notes as well, so people have an easy access from that point too. Great. If somebody, as you said earlier, that they can reach out to you, um, can you remind them if they, somebody needs to reach out and they're seeking guidance and they don't know where else to turn, sure. where can they reach out to you? A couple of different places. You can send me a direct uh, message on the uh, our Facebook page, Stop Hiding, Start Healing. On Facebook, Stop Hiding, Start Healing. You can send me a private message there, a direct message if you'd like. Um, I have another website, my own personal website, uh, Craig, uh, um, craigdbrown.com, craigdbrown.com, uh, or send me an email, craig at craigdbrown.com, craig at craigdbrown.com. And I'll have links to all of those in the show Thank notes you. as well, so people have any access to it. So this is one more thing before you go. Any words of wisdom before we go? Words of wisdom. Stop hiding. Start healing. It's an amazing journey. If you, when you get to the point where you, where the pain is greater than your fear, you stop hiding, start healing. The changes that you'll happen in your life are miraculous and amazing. And take it from me, one who's been to the pit of hell and back, and who now has a passion to help you others avoid the pit of hell, or if you're in it, not be there too much longer than you need to be. Greg, that's a fantastic journey that you shared with us. I really appreciate where you've come from and where you are now and what you did in between to make it to where you're at now and helping others to achieve success in trying to overcome and to move forward in a very positive way. So thank you for being part of the show. Thank you, Michael. Love being with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.